Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Sherry Quinn. Tyrannosaurus Rex is known as the fiercest carnivore that ever lived on the planet. Imagine a lifelike model of one, complete with skin, blood, and bones. For the first time, scientists will literally go under the skin of a full-size T-Rex to reveal how this 65-million-year-old beast may have lived. Sunday night, the National Geographic Channel will show their own attempt to crack the paleontological code with the two-hour world premiere special, T-Rex Autopsy. In collaboration with veterinary surgeons, anatomists, and paleontologists, T-Rex Autopsy will build the world's first full-size anatomically complete Tyrannosaurus rex, based on the latest research and findings. The creature has a heart 100 times larger than a human's, eyes the size of softballs, and serrated teeth up to a foot long. The massive model will be lifelike inside and out, giving scientists the chance to touch it, smell it, and cut it open from head to toe. T-Rex expert Steve Brusati, professor of paleontology at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, joins us on the program to discuss the unique project. So we're going to be showing what T-Rex was actually like as a real animal, how it hunted, how it moved, how it grew, how it reproduced, what the biggest, baddest predator that ever lived was really like. I'd like to back up and ask about your beginnings with dinosaurs. Did you have an interest in them as a child like many other young boys? Yeah, I wasn't, uh, believe it or not, uh, very interested in dinosaurs as a kid. Um, I, I meet kids all the time that love dinosaurs, little know-it-all kids that know all the names and can pronounce them all right. And uh, I tell these kids all the time that they're much more advanced than I was at their age. They have a huge head start on me because it wasn't until I was about in high school that I became interested in dinosaurs and fossils. So I, I did see Jurassic Park as a kid. I remember that. I remember seeing those dinosaurs in the theater. Uh, and I remember watching some dinosaur shows on TV and learning a little bit about dinosaurs in school, but none of it really clicked. So, um, you know, hopefully this show, hopefully T-Rex Autopsy will be the type of show that will click with people, and I think uh, kids will really like it too because there's lots of blood and guts and gore, and uh, they'll learn a lot of great science along the way. And so from what I understand, then you're going to actually dissect uh, a model of a Tyrannosaurus Rex, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. We're cutting up, we're hacking up, taking apart a life-size model of a T-Rex. So the thing is 42 feet long. It's about 10 feet or so high. And uh, we are taking it apart and talking about how all the different bits of it tell us about what T-Rex was like as a real animal. It's a living, breathing, feeding, moving, growing, reproducing animal. So I think a lot of times people, you know, think of T-Rex as a monster or something out of a nightmare, and not really as a real creature that lived millions of years ago. And we're going to try to break through that uh, that misconception and show that T-Rex was an animal just like any other. It had to eat, it had to defend itself, it had to deal with injuries, it had to grow, it had to reproduce. Uh, so I think people will get a, a new appreciation, maybe even a little bit of sympathy for T-Rex after watching T-Rex autopsy. Sounds fascinating. What kinds of materials were used in the process of constructing this model? The model was built by a really top-notch special effects uh, team. They're called Crawley Creatures, and they're, they're based in England, and they do a lot of work for TV shows and for movies and also do projects for museums. And so they use a lot of latex, a lot of clay, a lot of goose feathers, a lot of corn syrup as the blood, a lot of plastic, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and over about four or five months, a number of artists, thousands and thousands of man-hours, uh, went in 
to making this model. And it's incredibly realistic. It's very lifelike. And for me, I think it's the most accurate dinosaur that's ever been built, at least a physical dinosaur that's been built. It really, really is right on the money. And it's right in line with uh, all of what we know from fossils. So this is a very scientifically accurate model. This isn't a movie monster. This is as, as close as we can get to a real T-Rex, inside and out, because it's got the bones, it's got muscles, it's got skin, it's got teeth, and it's got the eyes, it's got all the guts inside, the heart and the lungs and the intestines and all that stuff. It's all there, and we're all <laughs> hack it open and show everybody what a T-Rex is like from snout to t- What have you learned from this process, or, or what can we learn from deconstructing or taking apart a, a T-Rex? Have you learned anything new in this process about the creature? It was, a, it was a lot of fun to take this thing apart, I'll tell you that. And I think, you know, when people are watching the show, it's going to be a fun show to watch because there's a lot of gore and guts and all of that. But all of us that are cutting it up are having a lot of fun, and we're using all kinds of tools to do it. There's all kinds of knives. There's even a chainsaw involved to cut off the leg so we can look inside the bone to better understand how the T-Rex grew. So it's a real spectacle as we're cutting this thing open. But each step along the way, we're cutting up parts of it that tell us about what the T-Rex was really like when it was alive. So it isn't some sort of stupid reality show. We're not, you know, claiming the T-Rex is still out there somewhere and that we found one, but we're using this model. We're having fun cutting it up, and, and uh, we're putting together this picture of T-Rex as, as a real a real critter. And so what can you tell us about the T-Rex? And I understand that also there has fairly recently been uh, a Pinocchio T-Rex discovered. Can you tell us about the um, natural history and evolution of T-Rex? Yeah, very happy to, to do that. That's one of the things that I've studied. So um, for the past decade or so, I've studied a lot of Tyrannosaurs, and I've discovered, described new Tyrannosaurs, and I've built family trees for Tyrannosaurs. And, and uh, we now know that T-Rex was a member of a really, really large group with a lot of species that lived all over the world for over 100 million years. And it was a group, this Tyrannosaur group, uh, that got its start over 100 million years before T-Rex lived. And for most of the history of Tyrannosaurs, they were small animals. They were about the size of a human. They were not top predators. There was nothing dominant about them. They were living in the shadows of other giant dinosaurs. But then a lot of those other giants went extinct in about 20 million years before the end of the Cretaceous period, which was about 80 million years ago, uh, T-Rex and, and its close relatives, they rose up. The Tyrannosaurs became big. They became top predators. They began to rule the land in North America and Asia. And then when they were at the top of their game, when T-Rex was stalking around the 42-foot-long, 7-ton animal. That's when the asteroid fell out of the sky, killed off all the dinosaurs, except for birds, of course, uh, and and ended the age of dinosaurs. So T-Rex was there when that asteroid hit, and it was one of the very last surviving dinosaurs of all. And it went out right at the top of its game, right in its prime. So who knows what Tyrannosaurs would have evolved into if they had a little more time on the planet. So did they have feathers, and how colorful were they? They did have feathers. They did. And we have feathers on this T-Rex. And that's not guesswork. That's something that we actually know from fossils, from real fossils, from a bunch of fossils in China of all kinds of dinosaurs, including two very close cousins of T-Rex, two primitive tyrannosaurs that are found covered, coated in feathers, just like birds. Not the exact same type of feathers. They're simpler feathers. They look a little bit more like hair. 
So they weren't flying around on these tyrannosaurs, but they were probably using these feathers to keep warm or, or to display to rivals or to mates. Uh, to make themselves look attractive or look intimidating. Uh, and we know that. That is something that is not some crazy idea. It's not artistic license. It's not something that we're putting on this T-Rex because we want to make it look weird, uh, you know, just to, 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 to make it, you know, uh, even more buzzworthy. The very first feathered dinosaurs were found after Jurassic Park, and that's why you don't see any feathers on the dinosaurs in the first Jurassic Park. Ah, okay. And uh, are you able to tell their color at all? Color is one thing that we don't know a whole lot about. We don't know what color T-Rex was. Obviously, we had to give it a color. So we used living birds, living crocodiles to give us kind of a a, a range of possibilities and then show something that we thought was plausible. So that's what we did with this model. There is some evidence in some dinosaurs of their color. If we have feathers preserved, and we do for a lot of dinosaurs, as, as we've been talking about, uh, you can look at those feathers under a really high-powered microscope, and sometimes you can see the little structures that contain the pigment. So you can see those things, you can tell the color from those structures, but you can only do that if you have very well-preserved feathers. So for a handful of dinosaurs, we do know what color they were, and they had all different kinds of colors, just like birds today. But for T-Rex, we don't know for certain. So, you know, tune in on Sunday night to see what we think is one very realistic possibility for how T-Rex may have looked. What do you know about what they ate and how much they had to feed? And They would have uh, eaten, they were, they of course, were meat eaters. I mean, that's it's pretty clear that T-Rex was a top predator. You can just tell from the steak knife teeth that it has 50 of them in its mouth. Uh, and we know what kinds of dinosaurs they ate. We know that they ate triceratops. We know that they ate duck-billed dinosaurs, and we know that because these were the dinosaurs that lived alongside T-Rex, and we actually have their bones with bite marks on them that perfectly match the teeth of T-Rex. So we know that T-Rex was a top hunter. It hunted big dinosaurs, and it did hunt. It wasn't only a scavenger or anything like that. We even have some of its prey species that have bite marks that have healed up, so you know that they had to survive an attack, so they had to have been hunted. Uh, and we know T-Rex was very powerful. It, it bit with a really strong bite force. It had very thick teeth, very big jaw muscles. And these are some of the things that we talk about in the film. Uh, and, and if you know, if you watch T-Rex Autopsy uh, on Sunday, as I'm sure all of you will, and you, <laughs> I certainly recommend it, um, you'll see just how strong a T-Rex could bite and what that meant for how it could feed and what you might find in its stomach. Did they hunt in packs or, or groups or... Were they loners? If a T-Rex isn't terrifying enough on its own, a 42-foot-long, 7-ton predator, just imagine them in a pack. And in fact, we do think that they did hunt in packs because we have a couple of fossil sites where a bunch of tyrannosaurs are found together, adults all the way down to juveniles. So about 8 or 10 of them found together. And, and that's an indication that they probably live together. So just, you know, T-Rex is in your nightmares as some kind of solitary killer. Uh, just imagine a pack of them working together in unison, like those velociraptors of Jurassic Park, a bunch of seven-ton animals stalking you down. Uh, you wouldn't have much of a chance, I don't think. And do you know about how many uh, young uh, female would have? Reproduction is one of the things we don't know a whole lot about. Uh, we don't have any fossils of T-Rex eggs that, that we know of. It's also very hard to tell males and females apart just based on the bones. But we do know a little bit from other dinosaurs, and this is something that we do talk about in the program. Uh, we try to determine whether it was a boy or a girl T-Rex, a, you know, a she-rex, if you will, as we joke about 
and uh, and then we try to determine what that means for how it died and how it lived. And that's a, a pretty cool part of the show, and we kind of come to this a great reveal at the end, which is a pretty neat moment, and I think pretty cool television. I was just watching it again today, uh, and so I don't want to give away the answer there, but it's a pretty, pretty cool moment towards the end of the show. So watch T-Rex Autopsy and watch it all the way to the end <laughs> to, to get to that bit. I'm wondering what you think about there are some efforts going on around the world, and I believe in the U.K., um, to bring extinct species back to life. Is this something that you're familiar with, and what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's the storyline of another movie that's coming out a few days after T-Rex Autopsy, a far inferior film called Jurassic World, which is the fourth Jurassic Park film. Um, the original Jurassic Park, the book and, and, and the movie, were, were just awesome, you know, and I've seen them many times, you know, I, you know, I watched them as a kid, they didn't really rub off them, but later on when I became interested in dinosaurs, the, the book and the movie really inspired me, and it's a great story, bringing dinosaurs back to life through their DNA, but I think, unfortunately, or maybe very fortunately, that's movie magic, uh, because you need basically a complete sequence of DNA to do that, and there's billions and billions of little parts of a DNA sequence, and we've never even found a tiny bit for a dinosaur. It's just really hard to preserve over tens of millions of years because it decays so quickly. So I think it's something that uh, will never be possible. Uh, I hate to say that. You always hate to say that something will be impossible as a scientist because you never know what you'll find in the future, but I'm pretty confident that we'll never bring dinosaurs back to life. But we have 10,000 species of dinosaurs living today, and those are birds. Birds are dinosaurs. They, they came from dinosaurs, and they, they're very much a part of the dinosaur family tree, just the same way a bat you know, is a strange type of flying mammal. So dinosaurs are still with us, and we can see them all over the world. And I think that's a whole lot better than trying to do some mad scientist thing and bring T-Rex back to life to you know, wreak havoc in Salt Lake City or wherever. How fast could the T-Rex move? Are you able to tease that apart? In, in Jurassic Park, you know, the T-Rex is shown kind of sprinting, uh, running down this Jeep at almost highway speed. Uh, we don't think that's likely. And, and in the, in the uh, program, we talk quite a bit about locomotion. We go into all the evidence, how, how scientists study it. Uh, so I won't give that away either, but certainly we think they're not as fast as what they are shown as in Jurassic Park. Uh, but exactly how fast they were is something that, that is studied, and, and it's something that when you understand that information, it can tell you a little bit more about T-Rex, how it hunted and how it lived. So uh, there's some great, great footage uh, in the show about that very topic. Have you been to Utah? I have, yeah, I have. And, you know, there's great dinosaurs, of course, in Utah, all over Utah. Utah is one of the best places in the world to find all kinds of fossils. And T-Rex is even known from Utah. There's not a lot of bones, but there's a few bones. And there are bones, really nice skeletons, of some earlier cousins of T-Rex. Things like Lithronax and Teratophonius are, are their names. And you can see those bones in Salt Lake City at the Utah Museum of Natural History, which is, has this great you know, new building, very, very good uh, paleontologists there. A few friends of mine are our uh, our curators and, and students there. Uh, so it's it's really one of the great dinosaur museums in the world, in your in your own backyard. So if you see T Rex autopsy, as I know you all will, and if you see Jurassic World, uh, go on over to the Natural History Museum in Salt Lake City and see the real bones and just be able to stand in the majesty of these, you know, sixty six plus million year old fossils. I wanted to actually ask about some of your other research, and I understand that you've discovered some new species of fossils. And could you give us some examples of those and where? 
Yeah, I mean, a big part of my job is, is studying dinosaurs, going up and digging out, uh, digging up new ones, and uh, going around to museums to study their bones and describing them, identifying them, and sometimes that does mean new species. So the Pinocchio rex that you mentioned earlier, one of these new tyrannosaurs, one of the very newest tyrannosaurs, something that was just announced last year, that was something that I studied with. Uh, with colleagues in China. So many of the great new fossils are coming out of China. And so this is a, a smaller tyrannosaur. It's only nearly about eight or nine meters long. It only weighed one or two tons. And those are, you know, puny numbers compared to T-Rex, which is much bigger. But this thing was still a, a formidable predator. But it had this strange long nose, this big long snout, which is why we gave it that stupid little nickname. And, uh, and so that just shows that, you know, not all tyrannosaurs look the same. There's a lot of diversity in the group, and um, you know we're finding a new species of dinosaur once a week now, on average, somewhere around the world. You know the community as a whole. So we're learning so much more about dinosaurs literally every every day. So it's a very exciting time to be a paleontologist. And for all the kids out there, there still is so much more that remains to be found. Amazing. And what does it tell you about evolution, studying dinosaurs, and finding so many? new species all the time. We're, we're learning a lot more about dinosaurs you know, all the time. And, and dinosaurs and other fossils, it's our only evidence for how life has changed over time, how real life has changed over time as the planet has changed over time. If we want to know what happens when real animals and real ecosystems uh, are faced with a big change in temperature, are faced with big changes in sea level, what happens when, a, when big volcanoes erupt or when an asteroid hits, we can't run experiments to tell us that. We can't really observe the modern world to tell us that. So we have to look to fossils. So especially now as the Earth is changing so rapidly, fossils give us a clue about how our Earth might respond to that. So I think that's why fossils are really important. That's why dinosaurs like T-Rex are really important. That's why I think it's important that we use the spectacle of T-Rex or a T-Rex autopsy to teach people about dinosaurs and especially to get the next generation interested in science. So, you know, we're all very excited about this show. We hope that you all tune in uh, this Sunday night on National Geographic Channel. And, uh, you know, this is going to be a spectacle unlike anything you've ever seen. Thank you so much, Dr. Bersati. It was really a pleasure talking to you, and congratulations on your great work. I look forward to seeing it. Yep, cheers. Thank you. That was paleontologist Steve Bersati. T-Rex Autopsy premieres Sunday night at 6 on the National Geographic Channel. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. Mad sounds in your ears make you feel alright. They bring you back to life. Mad sounds in your ears make you get up and down. Make you get up Yeah, they make you get up Welcome to Access Utah. I am Sherry Quinn. It's Niall McCann, and we're going to be talking about the show Biggest and Baddest. Niall has made it his mission to track down animals that have come in conflict with humans around the world. 
As a wildlife biologist and television personality, he sheds light on the dilemmas the animals face. In a series beginning on the Nat Geo Wild Channel tonight, Niall catches giant anacondas in the swamps of Venezuela, follows predators like the Royal Bengal Tiger into the jungles of Nepal, and wrestles with saltwater crocodiles in Australia's Northern Territory. Niall gets close to these deadly animals to learn more about them and to help the local populations live alongside them. Today on the program, he discusses his animal adventures with the series Biggest and Baddest. And he talks about how he folds the media into his scientific career and passion for living on the edge. The Biggest and Baddest is a show about the most conspicuously large and dangerous animals out there in the world, all of which are embroiled in some form of human-animal conflict. So they either affect people by eating us or by having some form of economic effect on us. But each one of those species is also severely affected by that relationship with people as well, such that there is a conservation situation where these species actually need our help in some way. So Biggest and Baddest is a show which tells the story of these human-animal conflicts from both the perspective of the species involved and the people affected by that conflict. And how did you get involved with the show? And uh, did you want to become a biologist first? Or how did um, film evolve into your scientific career? So I, I've always wanted to be a biologist since, since before I can remember. Apparently at the age of six, I'd announced to my parents that definitively I was going to be a biologist for my life. So I, from a very early age, knew that that was what I was wanting to do. And then by the time I got to university, so when I was about 19 years old, I had an interest in trying to combine biological research with broadcasting because it's a great way to reach a huge number of people to try and spread a message of environmental concern and of conservation and of course it gives you some, some amazing adventures as well if you're going out and filming wildlife so from the age of 19 I was starting to I suppose flirt with media agencies and eventually in the back end of my 20s it finally happened and, and I've been really lucky now to make 12 episodes of The Biggest and Baddest and, and another one-hour documentary for PBS as well. So it's, it's just started to happen in this last few years that I'm now combining my life as a biologist with my life on television as well. Amazing. Um, I imagine that you must be very busy. <laughs> yeah, I don't have much time to myself, but that's, that's great. I, I wouldn't want to be idle. I, I love doing all this type of stuff, and I can't ever see myself retiring. <laughs> great. And, and so what kind of creatures can we expect to see in this this program, I understand anacondas, tigers, and what adventures you, you have been through during the process of this film, filming. Yeah, there's been some pretty ridiculous adventures. And to, tomorrow, when the show starts on, on Friday the 5th of June, when it starts on Nat Geo Wild, you'll see anacondas and you'll see Bengal tigers. Now, in both of those shows, we had just, just insane encounters. With the anacondas, we caught... The largest snake that we caught and measured was five and a half meters long. So that's over 18 feet in length. And its girth was about 25 inches. So that's basically the girth of a normal-sized uh, or relatively small-sized human being. But, but that's, that's just insane that you get a snake of that size. And we had all kinds of other remarkable encounters throughout the making of that show, which was in southern Venezuela. And then in the tiger episode, most remarkably of all, was that on camera I was charged by a tiger which is a pretty wonderful thing to happen to me as a biologist. I think that was the most life-affirming moment that I've ever had and certainly makes a pretty outstanding television, having, having a camera 
charging down the barrel of the camera. So having a tiger charging down the barrel of a camera suddenly, suddenly gets the heart racing. And then in subsequent weeks, we've got, shows, we've got shows about saltwater crocodiles, about the cassowary, which is a crazy bird living in, in Australia, about the feral hog epidemic here in the U.S. Um, we've got a show about Nile crocodiles, about mountain gorillas, about the Burmese python epidemic in, in Florida, about the alligator gar. It's, it's a wonderful diversity of species, 12 episodes in total, and each one is worth watching. And I'll start with the anacondas. What are the issues they are facing in terms of conservation? Anacondas suffer from the same type of problems as most snakes, in that they are seen as being or devil-like animals. If you go back in, in Christian society, snakes have had a bad reputation since the Garden of Eden. And as a result of that, Christian societies have tended to persecute snakes for a very, very long time. And the stories of Genesis have really had a negative impact on, on humans' relationship with snakes. But non-Christian societies have also persecuted snakes throughout time. And I think one of the main reasons behind that is that snakes are genuinely dangerous. So very large constrictors can catch and eat people. And venomous snakes also can, can and do kill people with, with, with their venom. So humanity throughout time has had a, a really uh, tumultuous relationship with snakes. And anacondas being very large snakes simply live at quite low densities. So if if they are frequently being killed, if large numbers of anacondas are being killed, then it's very difficult for that population to sustain itself. So what is it like to capture and hold a creature such as an anaconda? Catching an anaconda is one of the most insane experiences of my life, but also just, just hugely exhilarating as well. So the first time I ever caught one was actually a few, few years ago when I was, I was doing some research on, a, on an animal called the giant otter, which lives lives in South America. And and I'd heard lots of stories about anacondas, horrible, horrible stories about people being, being caught and killed. But I'd never, never actually seen one myself. And my dreams were constantly punctuated with, with dreams of anacondas. It's kind of strange. I, I would lie in bed at night dreaming about the moment when I'd first see one and perhaps, perhaps have the opportunity to catch one. So, so when, I, when I first did, the reality exceeded all of those dreams. It really did. They are strong in a way that's hard to describe, just unbelievably powerful. And they're, they're, they constantly fight when you're, when you're trying to hold them, as, as, you, as you can well imagine, because they are being restrained. So they, they, they do resist that restraint. They're, they're so incredibly powerful. You have to be very, very careful not to get bitten and not to get wrapped up by some of their coils as well, because they... they have quite a few weapons. It's not just their teeth. But the thing you've really got to watch out for is, is them throwing a coil around your neck or something like that. So it's, it's a very, very precarious operation when you are doing this. And you're having to be as gentle as you possibly can with a snake for fear of hurting it while being sufficiently strong so that it doesn't get out of your grasp. It's quite a fine balance to, to, to tread. Have you been injured by an anaconda or any other creatures? No, I'm quite lucky. So I really try and pride myself in, in not getting bitten by stuff. And I try and minimize the amount of time I spend handling animals just because it increases the stress to them when you do handle them. But when, when it is necessary to handle, handle animals, to measure them or to 
put on a GPS collar or, or whatever it is, then I do so as, as rapidly and as safely as possible just to minimize the possibility of myself getting hurt and to minimize the possibility of, of the animal getting hurt. So very fortunately, I've, I've, I've never really been bitten badly by a snake. I've, I've had a, a, a very small non-venomous snake nibble on my thumb once, but that, was, that wasn't really a problem. But I've, been, I've done my best not to get bitten because it's not a good idea. <laughs> if you if you you're too cavalier and you let these things get hold of you, then, then yeah, catastrophic things could happen. That was explorer and biologist Niall McCann. Tonight on the Nat Geo Channel's first episode of Biggest and Baddest, he sets out to find the world's largest recorded anaconda in Venezuela. Tune in next Friday to hear more about McCann's adventures his scientific research on the rare mammal, the bear taper, and his conservation efforts. Stay tuned for science questions and the latest autism research coming up next. There's a destination a little up the road from the habitations of the towns we know. A place we saw the lights turn low, the jigsaw jazz and the jet fresh flow. Pulling out jobs and jamboree handouts, two turntables and a microphone. Bottles and cans, or just clap your hands, or just clap your hands. Where's that? I got two pebbles and a microphone. Where's that? I got two pebbles and a microphone. Where's that? I got two pebbles and a microphone. Where's that? That was a good drum break. Yourself up off the side of the road with the elevator bones and you with flash tones, members only hypnotizes me through the moonlight. Welcome to Science Questions. This is Sherry Quinn. A new autism study reveals daily living skills prove more important than autism symptoms, language, or IQ when it comes to employment and life satisfaction. This is one study among many presented at the International Meeting for Autism Research in Salt Lake City recently. The conference attracted nearly 2,000 participants, including scientists from 40 countries, to discuss the latest scientific and medical discoveries. Dr. Laura Klinger, Director of the Treatment and Education of Autistic and Communication-Related Handicapped Children Program at the University of North Carolina, joins us today to talk about the current research on autism. I'm wondering if you could define autism spectrum disorder for our listeners. Is it a definition that changes? So autism spectrum disorder is the term we use to describe individuals who have difficulties with social communication skills and difficulties with repetitive behaviors or restricted interests. And the diagnosis has changed across the decades where in the past we might have thought that in order to have autism you also had to have an intellectual disability, but now we know that you can have autism and be very smart, uh, but yet still have a diagnosis of autism. What has led to this new definition or new uh, understanding? I think our understanding has changed across time in that we know that there are individuals who struggle across their lifespan, even into adulthood, with how to interact with other people and struggle with difficulties uh, with having some obsessive interest or repetitive behaviors that might uh, give them difficulty in everyday life. And I think as we have uh, paid attention to these differences, we've noticed that it isn't really something that you see only in individuals who have learning difficulties, that it really goes across a spectrum. 
Can you discuss the prevalence of autism? And is, is it one in 68, I believe, now? It is one in 68, and, and I know that uh, this is the information from the Center for Disease Control that has been studying the prevalence of autism. So their uh, research, and this is not my research, but it's the Center for Disease Control research, has looked at the prevalence of autism in eight-year-olds. So in 2002, the prevalence of autism in eight-year-olds was one in 300, and now we see that it's one in 68 that's quite dramatic. Is it true that in North Carolina, it's one in 58? It is one in 58 in North Carolina. That's right. What are your hypotheses as to why it's higher in North Carolina and why so high? And is this in the U.S. or worldwide? It's a good question. Part of the reason why we think we're seeing this increase in diagnosis of autism is the change in our understanding of the disorder. So as we see that more individuals can have average or higher intellectual disabilities and still have autism, our uh, rates have increased. But we also see that um, less uh, children are being diagnosed as having an intellectual disability or mental retardation, and we recognize that those individuals have an autism spectrum diagnosis. And I think the reason we see different rates across the country has to do with access to services. So in North Carolina, uh, because we have the Teach Autism program, we have families have access to diagnostic services across the state, which allow families to bring their children and um, adolescents and adults to us if they have concerns about a diagnosis. Um, and when we look at lower um, or less autism in other states, it's usually associated with less access to uh, services. From what I believe, I think Utah has quite a high rate. That's right. So Utah is one of the states that the Center for Disease Control has found a high uh, rate of autism. And um, I know that we think that that might be t due to um, ability to access services. And that I know that the parts of Utah where the, this research was conducted was uh, where more population-based areas where families did have access to services. What are you finding in common with, I guess, with these um, children that are diagnosed with autism? Uh, what are some commonalities, I guess, that, that you're finding that could lead to possibly why? That is a good question. In, in terms of why we see a better uh, or why we see more uh, increases in the rates of autism? Uh, yes. Uh-huh. So... What we know is that um, all individuals who have the diagnosis of autism have difficulties with social interaction. Usually um, in the past, people thought that that meant that individuals with autism weren't interested in interacting with other people, but now we know that that's just not true, that many people with an autism diagnosis are very interested in interacting with others, but have difficulty figuring out how to do that. Um, and that is common across the lifespan. So for very young children with autism, we can see that they might struggle uh, with interacting with other young children. And even our research now into adults shows that adults with autism often struggle uh, with knowing how to interact with other people. But the way they struggle might be different. So they might be uh, very social, but not know exactly how to join in a social situation. I imagine that you are familiar with Temple Grandin. That's right. Uh-huh. She's done a lot for autism and especially making it more socially acceptable. Well, I think one of the things that Temple Grandin has done um, for the field and for families uh, living with autism across the world is the idea that um, autism is not just a childhood disorder and that you can have autism as an adult, that it's a lifelong disorder, um, and that also that 
even though it's a lifelong disorder, that doesn't mean that you won't have a successful adult life. And she's really an inspiration for lots of individuals um, and families about uh, somebody who's extraordinarily successful in her own career uh, and yet still has an autism diagnosis. What are some of the physical characteristics that individuals with autism can have? And I assume that some have certain physical characteristics and others don't. Well, there actually aren't any known physical characteristics um, associated with autism. So uh, for a lot of developmental disorders, you might be able to look at that individual and physically see that they look different from others. Uh, so for example, with Down syndrome, we're very familiar with being able to recognize Down syndrome uh, because of the physical characteristics that are often associated with it. But that's not true for autism. And, and families often talk about being out in public with their young children who might be having difficulties due to their autism and feeling like other families are blaming them for poor parenting because their children don't look any different from other children out in the community. Okay. What are some of the research findings that are being presented at this meeting that are getting a lot of attention? Right. So at this meeting, we have a an incredible array of research findings, everything from looking at basic science research, understanding more about the genetics of autism, and creating mouse models of, say, social difficulties or repetitive behaviors, and looking at how those mouse models allow us to develop new um, drug treatments for some of the symptoms of autism. So that is uh, at one end in terms of the basic science research that's being presented. And then our own research is looking at uh, adult outcomes of um, individuals with autism who were diagnosed as children. So our own research is looking at um, 20 to 60-year-olds with an autism diagnosis who were uh, diagnosed between 1970 and 1999 and looking at what we know about adults in terms of predicting um, good outcomes and what types of services and supports they need as adults. So you'll see at the conference everything from basic science to more clinical uh, research to more epidemiological research being presented. It's a very um, incredibly uh, fabulous opportunity for us to go and interact across our disciplines. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist, so in my everyday life, I don't really interact with geneticists or people who are doing mouse models of autism. So it's a wonderful opportunity for us to learn from each other and to develop the next sort of generation of research that we will engage in. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on uh, these environmental factors that can possibly lead to autism. Uh, I know there's been some research with flame retardants and chemicals and plastics. I'm wondering what you think about that. Right. So, uh, and that is an environmental risk factors are certainly an area that's being presented at the conference that actually isn't my own area of expertise, but I can tell you a little bit about uh, some of the uh, data that's being presented. I know that um, some of the more recent research has suggested that uh, parental age and particular age of fathers has been linked to uh, increased rates of autism. So as we see um, the age in which uh, fathers have children increase across the country, we've seen a uh, sort of increase in autism along with that. And I know we don't usually think of age of parents as an environmental factor, but it really is a, a cultural change in this country that might be associated with increased rates. It's probably the strongest environmental factor that we've identified so far in the research community. 
Interesting, because I had heard about maternal age, but no, I had never heard before. That it's paternal age, that's right. And almost almost all research suggests that uh, developmental disabilities are, are linked to older mothers, but this actually suggests also that older fathers play a role. What about drug therapies? Why would drugs be needed? Well, right now, the uh, most effective drugs to treat autism treat some of the symptoms that go along with autism. So, for example, we might use medication to treat anxiety in individuals with autism. We know there's a high rates of anxiety that goes along with autism. Or we might use medication to treat some of the um, gastrointestinal problems that individuals with autism have because we know that GI problems often go along with autism. So, a lot of the uh, drugs that we know that are effective currently uh, to treat individuals with autism are treating those comorbid symptoms. Do you know why GI problems would go along with autism? I really don't. I wish we knew that. And I think um, if you talk to some uh, researchers focusing in that area, they might have more clear um, understanding or beginning of an understanding of that. But we really don't know the answer to that. And so what is the typical age of diagnosis? It's a good question. Um, We see the symptoms of autism within the first two years of life, and there's a lot of just excellent research showing that we can recognize the symptoms of autism by 14 months and diagnose by 18 months of pretty effectively diagnose uh, an autism diagnosis. But most kids um, are not diagnosed until much later in life. And uh, I think there's a... um, huge need for physicians in this country and in other countries to recognize those early symptoms of autism. So while the average age of diagnosis is certainly decreasing in the United States across time, it still is much later than we know we're able to recognize those early symptoms. And even in our own work, we find that sometimes we'll see adults with autism who've never been diagnosed before that will come into the clinic and have concerns about why they're struggling or difficulties they might have with employment or in their own personal social relationships. And somebody had suggested to them that maybe they had a form of autism. And and they'll come in, indeed, that's what they have. I I think the um, oldest person that I diagnosed with autism who'd never been diagnosed before was in her 80s. Wow. And so what prompted her to be diagnosed, I guess? I think some of the difficulties she was having and people were wondering whether some of the difficulties she's having were dementia or intellectual disability or what was causing her difficulties in older adulthood. And um, that was a fairly rare uh, referral for me. It's much more common for me to see people in their 30s or 40s come in. Uh, and most of that, uh, those referrals have to do with people who are having difficulty with employment or struggling, perhaps they are in a um, romantic relationship and struggling with uh, maintaining that relationship or maintaining friendships. So usually when we see adults come in, it's, it's a little bit younger, but still we see a lot of 30 and 40 year olds coming into the clinic. What type of test or type of test that, that is taken? Right. We usually diagnose autism through um, behavioral uh, measures, and there really isn't currently a medical test that allows us to diagnose autism. So usually what we will do is use something called the ADOS or the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule. And it allows us to interact with an individual. For a two-year-old, we'd interact with a lot of play skills and play 
behaviors, but for an adult, it would more be a conversation. And it's just a way for us to look at uh, social skills and language skills and um, cognitive skills to look for those signs of autism. And can you give give an example of what a couple of the signs would be? Sure. So for very young children, the early signs of autism are uh, perhaps not sharing interest with another person, so not either pointing out something you're excited about or not showing something that you're very interested in uh, to another person. Um, Another very early sign of an autism diagnosis is not turning when your name is called. Uh, And then we might also see some symptoms in terms of repetitive behavior, either lining things up in patterns or focusing on one kind of toy or material and ignoring everything else in the environment. So those are the very early signs of sort of the social difficulties and the repetitive behaviors and interests that we see in autism. And is eye contact something as well that... Right. We see that young children with autism often don't look toward other people's faces as well. And we tend to see that across the lifespan. But as individuals um, develop over time, many of them do learn to look at other people's faces. So it tends to be an an earlier marker rather than necessarily a later marker of autism. My friend who has autism, when I first got to know her and first met her, she could not look me in the face or really look at anyone in in the room. It's been a few years now, and it's dramatic. The change in her has been dramatic. Yeah, and I think we see that um, that a lot of interventions um, focus on helping people with autism to look toward other people and pay attention to other people as a way of understanding more about social interaction. I think um, it's important, though, that it's it's not really about making eye contact. It's about being interested uh, in others and learning how to interact with others. Yeah, and I also noticed part of it was her being just feeling accepted more. I think, right, and feeling more comfortable in the in the environment. I think uh, one of the research studies that we're presenting here at the conference is looking at using anxiety intervention or cognitive behavioral therapy with uh, school-aged and adolescents uh, with autism spectrum disorder. And what we see is that as their anxiety is decreasing and they're feeling uh, more um, comfortable in a social uh, situation, we're seeing increased attention toward faces um, and less focus on objects. And so I think that part of the benefit of cognitive behavioral therapy is really helping decrease that anxiety and increase the attention um, to other people. And that's an example of one of the studies that one of my graduate students, Allison Meyer, is presenting at the conference tomorrow. Great. And uh, I can't believe that we are just about out of time. This has gone so fast. What else do you think is important to mention? You know, I think the other thing to talk about is the the research that, that I'll be presenting, which really looks at predicting employment in autism and how we can help people with autism uh, become employed successfully. And our own research suggests that um, everyday self-care skills is a, is a huge predictor of employment. So when we look at childhood self-care skills, things like 
like bathing and cleaning and and learning how to take care of themselves, that that really is, uh, in our research, the biggest predictor of employment as an adult. And uh, for us, it's a little bit of a wake-up call um, that in addition to looking at those social communication skills that you and I have been talking about, we also need to help uh, children and adults with autism uh, learn how to do everyday self-care skills. Uh, and I think that is definitely going to change some of the intervention techniques that we use at TEACH with uh, families to make sure that their children are ready um, to go out in the world and know how to um, take care of themselves independently um, in a way that will help them be successful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Clear, for your time. And uh, is it your first time in Salt Lake City or in Utah? It's my second time here. It's a beautiful city. I've been having a great visit. Um, I, I will tell you, though, it's a little bit cloudy. And when we were here in January, it was crystal clear. So I'm hoping that the sun will come out in the next couple days. <laughs> that was autism expert Dr. Laura Klinger. Sherry Quinn, Science Questions. Thank you for listening. 